This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. All right. Well, we are seeing some pictures just in the last few minutes of the president of the United States heading to Osaka, this big G20 meeting. We've been talking a lot about it, and that's largely because Presidents Trump and Xi, well, they're going to get together, try and figure this trade war out. Terrence Dopp is political reporter for Bloomberg. He joins us on the phone from Princeton, New Jersey, and Ray Shong, program assistant at the Kissinger Institute on China and the United States at the Wilson Center on the phone from Washington. Ray, want to start with you. Set the scene here. The president, the the presidents, I should say, and many other world leaders convening there in Osaka. What's realistic in terms of U.S.-China trade coming out of this weekend? Well, I'm sure, as you've seen, there's this potential for a new trade equilibrium or discussions of a trade equilibrium. But whether this holds up isn't set yet. But in the international multilateral spaces that the United States and China are navigating in, they're um, addressing a U.S. and a China that are rapidly changing. China's throwing money around in exchange for acquiescence to the Chinese government or Chinese firms navigating spaces, and the U.S. is looking a lot less um, maybe less predictable than in the past and is making a lot of pronouncements about changing trade and diplomatic deals. So this is the perspective from a lot of third country um, parties that are attending the G20 this year. So Terrence, come on in on this conversation. I mean, man, it's been busy this morning and I feel like you had Secretary Ross making comments, Secretary Mnuchin making comments, you had President Trump giving an interview over at Fox Business. Uh, you know, we're all trade front and center here, top of the mind, um, top of mind rather. So I don't know, how do you guys kind of make sense about what what is worthy of all of our attention and what is just what is just talk? Well, correct. Um, I think uh, the markets are sort of going to provide that sort of sense of of guidance you're speaking about. Um, There was generally some uh, well-received news on uh, Mnuchin saying that he sees sort of, quote, a path forward or a path to complete this, rather, um, which then was sort of put into some level of uncertainty when the president spoke in the Fox Business interview a little bit later. And so, you know, Ray, one of the things that we know from watching the president of the United States is he likes to win and he wants to come out of this weekend in part to calm markets, in part to sort of calm the world, uh, to have something that, that he can hang on to. What What's sort of the minimal amount that he can get that you feel like he can uh, declare victory? Is it a postponement? Is it an actual agreement? Is it just to kind of keep talking? What do you think? What we've seen calm markets down in the past are indicators that there are, that trade talks will continue. Whether that happens after the G20, um, that's that's not for me to say. But um, because talks have been such at an impasse with tariffs coming down on China, that has been what's causing um, economic indicators to be rocky so far. 
So, uh, you know, I'm curious to um, Terrence, you know, what yeah. kind of guidance you're getting from the administration? I mean, are they anticipating that something gets done? So many of the conversations Jason and I have had with Bloomberg team members and folks on the outside is that the bar is low for what might ultimately get done. Well, to sort of build off what, what Ray was just saying, um, the people within the folks within the administration are even saying, you know, they're tempering sort of expectations. They're they're saying there's there's not a likelihood of coming out of this with any sort of a you know hammered out final deal, but that they're looking for some some sign, some sort of progress on that front. So, Ray, what about, you know, in terms of President Xi, right? Like, it's just fascinating, the pressure, I think, both on President Trump, President Xi, to get something done, but at the same time to kind of feel like they each got a win. And let's add on top of it what's going on in Hong Kong. I think about the added pressure that puts on President Xi, potentially. Right. Hong Kong protesters have been attempting to deliver petitions to various G20 um, attendees. And Xi Jinping right now is, um, he, he for the last couple of years, has been enforcing um, additional administrative-based law enforcement pressures on Hong Kong, so making protests more difficult or um, make or making certain types of changes within the Hong Kong municipal government. And this has all come to a head as millions are marching in protest, and which is something that challenges the perception of stability on the part of the Chinese government going into this summit. Ray, just want to ask you one last question, maybe a little bit of a curveball here, but North Korea is still looming out there. There were reports potentially of a third summit uh, maybe potentially being planned between the leaders of North Korea and the United States. Does North Korea come into the conversation at all over there in Osaka? I would say that one one thing that I'm, I'm pretty certain uh, of North Korea is that uh, the sort of institutional memory of what's happened with North Korea in the past. So when you're looking at conduct by Washington, um, Beijing, or other states, um, different countries are remembering that summits with North Korea have fallen through in the past or that um, different types of economic sanctions or other types of policy can suddenly get put on the table. So uh, when it comes to security policy, I think the expectations are that they can change uh, very rapidly and very suddenly, and everybody's just got to adjust to that as a result. Well, we're definitely in an environment where, you know, it feels like almost anything could come up uh, in terms of these negotiations. Uh, Ray Zhang, thank you so much. Program Assistant at the Kissinger Institute on China and the U.S. at the Wilson Center on the phone from Washington, D.C., and on the phone in Princeton, New Jersey, Terrence Dopp. He's political reporter at Bloomberg News. So trade tensions are killing the markets, or so says at least our next guest. Wayne Wicker is chief investment officer at Vantage Point Investment Advisors, $29 billion in assets under management based in Washington, D.C., in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio right here in New York City. Um, Wayne, good to have you back with us. Thanks, girl. Um, I want to get right to something that we talked about a lot this morning on uh, TV, on the TV side, and that was... Are we blaming trade and the U.S.-China trade tensions for too much right now? 
Well, I think that investors are overreacting in many ways, right? I think trade tensions are driving markets uh, uh, a lot in the month of June. So we've seen a great June this And rightfully month. so? Or are we, doing, are we blaming trade too much? Well, I think that trade gets too much credit and too much blame. Uh, you know, when we've talked in the past, uh, I've been of the opinion that it's going to take a lot longer than people think uh, to get resolution to this. And uh, I can remember early in the year we were having these conversations, yeah. and I thought, you know, late year, uh, late late this year is when we're going to start to see some progress, if we do. Mm-hmm. Uh, the markets aren't willing to wait that long. They're impatient. And so uh, when we see uh, any sign that uh, things are going to get better, I think you've seen a lot of uh, – uh, upside uh, acceleration on uh, uh, equity prices. And so in the meantime, Wayne, wh- where do you go? Like, what? where do you kind of hang out as you wait for either the next tweet or the next extension or, God forbid, some sort of resolution here? Well, for the last six months, uh, I've been suggesting that uh, the 10-year Treasury has been a great place to be. And, and it has, actually. Yeah. Uh, and it's not because I thought uh, that rates were going to go higher or lower. It was more due to the uh, unique performance attributes that uh, treasuries seem to have versus equities and, and other asset categories. But we've seen the rally on uh, the 10-year from last fall at almost 325 down to about 2% today. Right. So today I think that uh, it's not as attractive uh, for brand-new money to be uh, moving into treasuries. Having said that, uh, high-quality and shorter-duration uh, fixed income uh, is not a bad place to hang out, especially given the overbought conditions I perceive over the last month mm-hmm. in, in uh, the equity market. You know, when we get ready for this interview, I was talking to our producer, Paul Brennan, and I said, oh, it looks like our assets under management went up by a couple billion from the last time you were here. <laughs> I think it was 27 I had in my notes. And so I thought, is it appreciation or is there new money coming in? Is Are you finding new capital coming in to invest? I would say that the capital has been pretty stable. Uh, and so this has been... So a, not a, more, not less from what you've no, been it's seeing. it's about the same. And, and remember, Carol... Uh, our plans are all defined contribution plans, so mm-hmm. it's a pretty steady flow. It's not retail. I that. Uh, yeah. It's not retail flows. So uh, we have the benefit of having a longer-term time horizon and a client base that is very long-term oriented. And so, talk to us about domestic versus international in terms of where you're looking. You know, we've been talking so much about the international scene, as you mentioned when you. Uh, Right before we came on air, you're up from Washington. The president just left on his way to see all the other world leaders over uh, in Japan. So do you stay put when it comes to equities domestically or do you branch out internationally? What's the balance for you now? I would tell you that uh, from a fundamental perspective – uh, international equities or non-U.S. equities are, are a much more attractive place to be. But hmm. having said that, uh, I favor uh, domestic equities uh, simply because when you look at Europe, for instance, uh, the geopolitical problems that we see, uh, the transition in leadership in the EU, uh, certainly uh, Brexit is going to have an impact. And quite frankly, when you look at spreads on credit uh, over there for sovereign countries, it really doesn't make sense relative to the U.S. Treasury. Right. So it's just in perspective or relativity to what else is out there, the U.S. still looks good. How does the Fed play into kind of your thinking about what, what's to come here? Do you anticipate that the Fed just kind of stays where it is? Do we get maybe one or two rate cuts this year mm-hmm. or, I don't know, something else? Well, certainly the futures market is uh, uh, predicting at least – 100% chance of one, yeah. 96% yeah. chance of two or more. And I think there's a 
60% chance of three or more. I think Does that, that make sense? That makes I mean, no sense to me. The markets could change very <laughs> uh, – what did you say? That makes it no makes sense. It makes no sense to okay, me. Okay, right. So what do you think realistically will happen? I think that uh, the market uh, will easily uh, um, uh, focus on one rate cut. You know, I, I have a hard time believing more than two. Uh, I, I am of the opinion that we'll get a rate cut uh, probably in the next couple months. But I think that there's a lot of data that's going to come in between now and the end of July when they meet again. we got all of earnings season right. coming through. Right. I think that we have a lot of other uh, factors coming in outside the U.S. And who knows what happens with uh, the tariff negotiations. But uh, uh, I think that the market is a little too optimistic that uh, – uh, the combination of Fed cuts and uh, tariff resolution is going to propel us uh, here in the next uh, three or four months. And how are you modeling earnings uh, right now? Because earnings, it's Carol Master's favorite time of every quarter because we well, get check, the actual right? numbers yeah. and we get the actual sentiment from uh, CEOs. How are you feeling as we uh, head into earnings season? I think that this is a really challenging time. I think uh, you saw consensus move up modestly on, on earnings uh, in the last month. However, it Aren't seems... are comparisons getting easier, though? I think comps ought to get easier as the year progresses, Carol. I think that's right. Uh, but I don't think that you are seeing the ebullience that you saw, say, a year ago in terms of everybody right. beating. And so I think that... Uh, you know, some of the earnings numbers this year, uh, this quarter, are going to be uh, uh, challenging. Mm-hmm. But I think what's going to be more important, Jason, is what is the forward guidance that right. CEOs or yeah, CFOs look. are going to be giving. We got to ask you. You're here from Washington D.C. We got to talk politics. We get the first of two Democratic presidential hopefuls debates tonight. Ten candidates from the Democratic side uh, up there taking questions. Um, what is it that you're watching in terms of the political race and what it might potentially mean for policy and what that might mean for America and investments? Yeah, that is a really good question. Uh, you've got only half of the candidates uh, uh, debuting this evening. I think it's so early uh, in this uh, uh, entire uh, race, uh, you know. Uh, we're going to have a lot better idea, say, six months from now, if you ask me that question, because I think that uh, it is so bifurcated in, in terms of the types of mm-hmm. opinions that you have, even within a single party, uh, that it's going to be really hard to tell. In terms of policy, uh, I think that when we uh, get a little closer to year-end, that is when I think that you are going to start to see uh, a lot of friction uh, between the Republicans and Democrats as they are trying to align themselves appropriately for the upcoming campaign. I'm just thinking about whether it's pharmaceuticals, whether it's pricing when it comes to health care, whether it's education. Like you do wonder, infrastructure, could we finally get something done? I mean, I don't know. Yeah, infrastructure, we've been looking for infrastructure for the last yeah. year and a half. Uh, yeah. That was one of the... Uh, uh, and still can't legs get of the it stool, done. And yeah. I think that's really challenging, quite frankly. For sure. Mm-hmm. Wayne Wicker, Chief Investment Officer down at Vantage Point Investment Advisors. About $29 billion in assets under management down there in the nation's capital. Great to have you here with us. So this 
This next story is, yeah, about someone who takes the money and runs, but uh, it's also surprising, solemn, and sobering. It involves a Boeing engineer turned addict turned bank robber. Josh Dean wrote this story. He's a freelance writer. He wrote it as part of the magazine's double heist issue, which hits newsstands uh, tomorrow. Uh, It's also on the Bloomberg and at Bloomberg.com. Josh joining us now to talk about it on the phone from Brooklyn and back in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio in New York. Once again, Joel Weber, Bloomberg Businessweek editor. Hey, Josh, um, Jason and I got lucky enough to talk with you earlier in the week about this story for our weekend shows. Um, Tell us a little bit about, though, uh, about this individual who was doing pretty well in life until he wasn't. Yeah, he was um, an engineer in Boeing's uh, 747, the the biggest jet in in Boeing's arsenal. He was designing uh, the lead engineer on the galleys, so he designed kitchens for airlines all over the world and was doing very well. But then he threw his back out and had to have back surgery, and this is the early 2000s when we didn't really know a lot about what we now understand as the opioid crisis and and got hooked on painkillers. Oxycontin being the the choice at the time and and uh josh and i go way back so josh always a pleasure to talk with you uh the 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 thing with the oxycontin thing was that as he got hooked it became more and more addictive to the point that he was smashing it up and snorting it and then eventually oxycontin formula changed and you could no longer get high that way and that's when the story actually starts to accelerate shall we say right that was 2010 so 2010 produced pharma changed that the chemical makeup of oxy and a lot of people well addicts especially sort of date that as the start of the heroin crisis in america when when people switched from pills to, to heroin and so josh he starts robbing banks and he's obviously a smart guy it trained to be a boeing engineer as you say and a, success, a successful one at that he's moved in with his mom ultimately and and ultimately you know starts robbing banks because he can, and, and he figures out a very methodical and successful way to do it. Yeah, let's be very clear about that. He was very, very good at robbing banks. Yeah. <laughs> right, Josh, what, Josh yeah. what were his secrets? So, yeah, I mean, he realized that in most cases, bank robbers are desperate, and they make dumb mistakes because they don't think about it. He's an engineer, so he, he decides to sort of go about it like an engineering problem. And, you know, the keys are quickness, so got to get, get it out really quickly. So under 45 seconds is what he decided. And you don't have to carry a weapon because tellers will give you money. They are taught to give you the money because the banks say, like, it's not worth your life to save a couple thousand dollars. So he took those two pieces of information and then cased banks in a very specific way. So figured out, you know, what's the quickest way out, time the lights, parked his car in a specific location, all to get in and out in as short a time as possible and onto a highway. Because he figures, you know, even the fastest cops, unless somebody happens to be driving by, it's going to take them five minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, which is a pretty big head start if you're careful. Well, and listen, he got so good at it, right, that he could actually rob the same bank several times. So, But that's that's actually where the story gets really interesting, right? Because he was very good at robbing banks, but uh, banks don't have a lot of money in, no. in the tellers these days. So yeah, he, he was like getting, you know, $1,000, $1,000, $1,000. So Josh, 14 months of robbing banks. He gets 30 banks total. What's the grand haul? Uh, it was about seventy-seven thousand dollars. So, I mean, I mean, and we're talking Seattle, so a high, very high cost of living. And seventy-seven grand over fourteen months in Seattle is not going to afford you a, a very grand lifestyle, especially if you're addicted to heroin. So, 
Yeah, I mean, in the beginning, we were sort of calling it the working working man's bank robber, the blue-collar bank robber. I mean, he really worked the hardest hard working bank robber. Yeah. for a long period of time and was, yeah, making a living wage, which, of course, then he was shooting into his veins. But um, what Joel said is right. It's like a lot of this is because banks just don't carry huge amounts of cash. I mean, the big heists of the future are going to be digital heists, and you're just not going to walk out with, like, 20, 50, 100 grand or more, um, unless you're hitting an armored car or something. And and he actually, you know, in the story, um, and Josh, I think the thing that Josh did really well with the story is that it, we, this is a sympathetic character. He kind of can't help himself, and that was the nature of his addiction. And he was very clear that he was he had no intent to hurt anyone. He just wanted to get in and out, And he, but he kept hoping he could just get a little bit more money. If he could get $20,000 he would go get some methadone and and take his mom and get out of town and like get over his addiction and stop robbing banks. Yeah. But he just could never quite catch a break. And even when he did catch a break at a casino, because <laughs> he resorted <laughs> to the casinos, you know, it, it, he took a, he took some time off. And the the cops were sort of uh, who were following him by this time were sort of like curious, like, did the guy flee because he's been quiet? But he was actually just like going through his casino winnings. <laughs> That's right. His mom liked to do the slots. So when he had a little bit of extra money, he would take his very sick mom to the casinos and they would play the slots. I will say, because we're running out of time and it's a fascinating read, but he does eventually get caught. He does some jail time. Oh, Um, still doing the jail time. He's still doing the jail time. That's right. And so he might get out, I guess, eligible in December. But it's a fascinating read. It's also, we talk about addictions. uh, And this is really truly a story. It's a heist, but it's also an addiction story and really talks to the opioid crisis that we've had in this country. Right. Yeah. It's a a really uh, interesting read. A lot of twists and turns. Maybe not exactly what you expect when you start it. Josh Dean is a writer for Bloomberg Business Week. He joined us from Brooklyn, Joel Weber here with us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It is time for the drive to the close. Shah Galani is back with us, editor of the Capital Wave Forecast, uh, which watches capital flows into and out of stocks, markets, and asset classes, also currencies. Uh, forgive me, also countries. Countries. Cur- countries cur- and currencies. Currencies, too, right? <laughs> yes. Countries, currencies. What do you need? He's uh, got it. All, all of it. All of it. He's based in Florida. He's in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio in New York. Nice to have you here with us. Well, thank you for having me. Tell us about flows, because I do feel like when we're in a market environment like this, when you can start to track different metrics. We talked about ETF flows with one of our um, ETF trackers, in-house trackers, uh, Eric Balchunas. Like, I think you can get a better idea of kind of what's on the mind of investors and what they're doing. What are you seeing when it comes to money flows? Oh, well, I'm seeing some uh, some strange psychology. Uh, if you look at the first quarter, we had negative, uh, we had net outflows uh, from equity ETFs and mutual funds to the tune of about $39 billion. We had further outflows in April. We had a lot and of- And it was going into fixed income. That's what our era 
Paragon. It was she going into fixed income and yeah. into money market funds. We had a larger uh, outflows in May, of course, because we know when the market dips like that, the mon- money comes out. However, June so far has seen about $5 billion come out of the market. Still, markets have gone higher since then. So a lot of that is buybacks. And a lot of what we're doing in terms of looking at the flows is that where is the money coming from that's driving the market higher? And a lot of it in the first quarter has been, well, principally, it has been buybacks. And so how much of what happens next hinges on this weekend and President Trump and President Xi, either what happens specifically this weekend or even the tone that they set and the possibility of a deal? You know, we heard Secretary Mnuchin, I believe, say 90 percent of the way there. Uh, how much? But he also it- said something similar, didn't he? Like a couple of months. Like right. the, yeah. <laughs> so how much of this? pent-up demand is is going to be unleashed if we do get a deal? I think a significant amount of pent-up demand uh, will be released because if you look at what I at, at the numbers of what's come out of the market, that all that capital is essentially on the sidelines waiting to come in. And uh, what's happening right now is fear of missing out. So the retail investors and a lot of institutional investors on the sidelines, again, um, the market's been driven higher by buybacks. Yeah. So what's happening is that sideline capital is anticipating probably will get Maybe we won't get some kind of trade resolution. If we do, I think that money's going to come off the sidelines, and I think the market could see a nice leg higher. And is when you say sidelines, is this parked in cash or in sort of defensive stocks or a combination of both? Like, where are you at this point? Well, sixty percent of the money that came off the markets uh, came out of the markets went into money market mutual funds. So there's okay. a lot of ready cash there. The rest of it really principally went into bonds. Some of it went into emerging markets uh, funds, huh. but it came out of domestic equity. So that was surprising again to see the rise in domestic markets uh, given the amount of outflows. But um, I'm principally on the sidelines here because you could flip a coin in terms of what's happening, could happen with trade war. We saw what happened in December in Argentina. There were some high hopes uh, there would be some resolution there between uh, President Trump and and Xi, and nothing happened, and the market fell back right down. Here we are once again um, hoping that there'll be something coming out of Osaka, and if there's not, or if there's some saber-rattling, the markets, I think, could see a nice dip. Right. So, okay. So you so you're calling for a pullback here on the equity side. If we if we don't get positive news, if we get if I I think what we'll get is probably a sort of standstill understanding that the two presidents come to that uh, they're they're on the verge of moving forward with some um mutually agreeable um understanding of how to go forward now right. whatever that means um, and I think the markets will probably take a breath on that and hold off till they see what in the final analysis comes out of these negotiations uh, if we don't get at least a standstill um, agreement or opportunity there I think and there's nothing but saber rattling in the markets I think um, we're, they're ready for a little bit of a dive here I think we could see a very quick 10% move to the downside and so in general, as people feel, and maybe I'm misinterpreting here, feel a little bit more defensive, are they headed toward those more classically defensive sectors and stocks in your estimation? I, I think if they start to, I think, tiptoe back in, it'll be more on the defensive side. Mm-hmm. Um, consumer staples, I think, and uh, utilities. I, I think some of those staples and uh, the, the old standby defensive stocks, including literally defense contractors and stocks, um, I think that's where people are going to go. 
Well, it's interesting, too, today, and I don't know whether this is the result of Jim Bullard, you know, kind of maybe pulling in, reining in some of the expectations for aggressive rate cuts and saying, well, maybe a quarter point makes more sense, right, at this point. But right now, you've got utilities, your worst performing group on the day is down about 2%. Real estate's down about 1.8%. Consumer staples are down about 1.2%. Top, we've got energy, information, technology, and consumer discretionary. So it's, it's investors more willing to take on some risk here right now. Well, I think that's anticipation of something coming out of the G20, something positive. And so they're stepping in a little bit right here. Uh, James Bullard, let's not forget, a couple of weeks ago was, was calling for a couple of cuts. And now he's backtracked on that. Um, Chairman Powell came in after James Bullard was, made his very dovish comments. And he added to those with the as appropriate comments. So the market's really been taking its lead off whatever the Fed is saying it's going mm-hmm. to do. The anticipation of cuts is driving investors back into stocks. And so if you so let's say best case scenario Trump and she big bro hug everybody's excited they get a deal market goes up How, what's driving those is it just a broad it's sort of a broad based buy or where do you put money uh, in that case where are you most enthusiastic on the heels of a deal. I think I'll be in the, the really the, the more risk-oriented assets at that point because I think there'll be a lot of money coming in, as I said, off the sidelines, mm-hmm. and they're going to go for the growth stocks because that's where the money has been. All the stocks. But we've been waiting been, for that money to come in from the sidelines. What's going to make it different this time around? I think this time around, because we get some clearance, we get a clear runway. If this, if there is no trade issue in the, on the back burner, on the front burner, out of the picture, then I think investors say, what else is going to stop us? The Federal Reserve has basically said they're going to put apply their Fed put if anything negative happens. So we've got that behind us. They're not going to reverse course and now raise. So I think it's clear sailing for investors who want to come into the market, provided there is some kind of trade negotiation that, that's amicable. So where don't you want to be right now? In terms of the investment environment. Well, I'm mostly on the sidelines right now because right. I have no idea which way we're going to go. You really are. I, I'm, I'm not. What does that mean? Is that mostly cash? Well, for me, when I put money in cash, it's usually in high-yielding dividend stocks. I like Ford. I particularly like AT&T at this juncture. I also think AT&T so you get the has dividend good yield. upside. Yeah, I've got, I've got um, very nicely over 6%. I, in Ford, I bought it considerably lower, and I'm, I'm holding on to that. Um, AT&T, uh, I think it's got another 23 maybe 25% upside. Hmm. It's got a six and a quarter dividend yield even here at this price. So I think that's yeah. a great place to put your money in. And uh, I think both of them have great prospects for the future too. All right. We're going to leave it there. Shagalani is editor of Capital Wave Forecast, splitting his time as one does between Florida and uh, up here in New York. Enjoy this Florida-like weather that we have delivered to you so nicely. Great to have you here with us in New York City. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.